very beautiful and palatial UltimateSportsTalk.com radio studios where I have just seen a tree limb fall off of my tree out the window here at the studio. You know that the weather is turning when there are no longer any leaves on the tree and the limbs are starting to fall onto the ground. Good evening, everyone. I'm Dave Mitchell. Welcome to the Ultimate Sports Talk Show. And boy, do we have a lot of Ultimate Sports Talk topics to go over with you this evening. The World Series is going on. The Cleveland Browns, for the 20th time, will have a new starting quarterback. We've got basketball, hockey, everything in the world going on, plus the good, the bad, and the ugly. And our guest tonight, I needed my Mark Donahue fix from the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. So since the Cincinnati Reds went out and hired a new manager before the World Series began earlier this week, and there is a tremendous amount of rumbling going on in the Reds nation about what this team may do with new manager Brian Price, and will Brandon Phillips still be a part of the team? That's what we're going to talk to Mark Donahue about tonight, about the Reds, World Series Game 1, and several other topics in the world of baseball. But we're glad to have you along here this evening on the Ultimate Sports Talk Show. You can join us just simply by emailing us or sending us a tweet. Our email address here at the show, dmitch at ultimatesportstalk.com, or you can send us a tweet to at ohbbcohost. Those are the two letters, B-B-O-H-B-B-cohost. Well, the Cleveland Browns, as I said, have a new quarterback. They're facing the unbeaten Kansas City Chiefs in Missouri this Sunday. The first BCS polls came out earlier this week. Ohio State has won 19 in a row, and they continue to drop in the polls. They'll entertain Penn State this Saturday. But we begin tonight with the World Series and Major League Baseball. And here we are in the month of October. As I said at the top of the show, the weather is turning Limbs are falling, leaves are falling, got to get the air blower out to get the leaves taken care of, and of course last night was the first game of the World Series. And suddenly and alarmingly, the St. Louis Cardinals, who have been playing fantastic defense all season long, practically all of their lives, suddenly forgot how to use their gloves in game one of the World Series last night at Fenway Park against the Boston Red Sox. Yet, for the Cardinals, the National League's best team throughout the regular season defensively, fundamentals, well, they went right out the window last night. The Cardinals are the clean-shaven bunch, you see. They are the ones that are a spiffy, by-the-book organization, and they came unglued in the first two innings of last night's ball game against the Boston Red Sox. And what did the Red Sox do? They punished them, winning that ball game 8-1 to to open up the series that was supposed to be the best baseball had to offer. Instead, it turned out to be a circus, at least in game one. Cardinals shortstop Pete Cosma, a chief culprit of the defensive woes, understated the fact when he said the Cardinals didn't play well in game one. Boston left-hander, John Lester was dominant last night. He went seven and two-thirds scoreless innings. He walked only one, struck out eight, 
Mike Napoli, on the other hand, for the Red Sox, gashed the Cardinals with a three-run double in the first inning, and David Ortiz finished them off with a two-run homer in the seventh. Fox Sports announcers Joe Buck and Tim McCarver recap Game 1 in Boston last night. Well, the night. final from Game 1, 8-1 to one behind John Lester. The Red Sox were in control. The Cardinals commit three errors, very uncardinal like And so now in Game 2, the world will be watching as this 22-year-old kid, Michael Lockett, gets the ball with his club down one game to nothing. Yeah, the Cardinals are once again putting the heat on a 22-year-old who last year uh, again, was uh, was pitching for Texas A&M. John Lackey, on the other hand, pitched one of the great postseason road starts of his career, maybe the best, throwing his curveball for strikes. That was in game three against the Detroit Tigers and Justin Verlander. So if you can uh, beat Justin Verlander, John Lackey's got to have a lot of confidence in going out and, and pitching well against the Cardinals tomorrow night. Yeah, and uh, it's Waka who was watching Adam Wainwright tonight. Waka hoping for better defensive help behind him in game number two. Boy, no kidding. For St. Louis, the seeds of this defeat were planted and then cared for by the Cardinals themselves. They had committed three errors the entire postseason, and they committed three Wednesday night in the first two innings. They gave away no fewer than four outs. The primary mistake came with two on and one out in the first on a bouncer to second baseman Matt Carpenter. Carpenter fed Cosma, trying to go for the double play, and things went totally haywire. Not only did Cosma, in the lineup for his defensive prowess, drop the feed, visible both in plain sight and in slow motion as it glanced off the front of his glove, but second base umpire Dana DeMuth, for some reason, called base runner Dustin Pedroia out. What he was watching five feet away from this play, nobody knows. So the one mistake almost compounded into two. It was obvious Cosma never caught the ball. He glanced off his glove, so after Boston manager John Farrell conferred with the umpires, they huddled and reversed the call, making Farrell a very happy manager. From the dugout view, it was pretty clear that you know, that ball just tipped off the, the fingertips of his glove. Uh, I think we're, we're fully accepting of the neighborhood play. Um, but, but my view was that it, it wasn't even that. There, w there was really no entry into the glove with the ball. Um, and to their credit, they did confer. And I think the, the one thing is we, we just strive to get the call correct. And I think based on their group conversation, uh, surprisingly, to a certain extent, they, they overturned it and I think got the call right. What was surprising was that DeMuth blew this call anyway. He was five feet from it. How he couldn't see that Cosma didn't catch that ball is beyond me. Yet, in an argument with the umpires, when one manager is happy, another manager is then upset. And such was the case with St. Louis manager Mike Matheny after the ball game. What was explained was um, they wanted to get the call right. And uh, they got together as a group, and uh, five of them believed that the call was different than the one that was made. Basically, the explanation is that's not a play I've ever seen before. And I'm pretty sure there were six umpires on the field that had never seen that play before either. And it's a pretty tough time to debut that overruled call in the World Series. Um, now, I get that uh, trying to get the right call, I get that. Um, just a tough one to swallow. Okay, two things here. First of all, I don't understand how the umpires, this is the first time they've ever seen someone at second base not catch a ball. That, that one totally throws me. 
But what also got me was the fact that Mike Matheny had the audacity to go out and argue it after it was shown on the scoreboard at Fenway Park several times. Why go out and argue it? The umpires made the call, huddled, got together, reversed the call, they got it right, and Matheny comes out and re-argues it all over again. But the thing is, is that it, we're commending the umpires, really, for huddling and getting the call right when Dana DeMuth should have never missed the call anyway. The Cardinals came into this series winning 97 games in the regular season. They've been to the playoffs 10 times in the last 14 seasons, and they are successful because they shrug off these defensive lapses that they very rarely have. Then they opened up the second by getting Boston shortstop Stephen Drew hopeless in the postseason at the plate to hit a soft, low pop-up on the infield. Adam Wainwright, the Cardinals pitcher, called for it, but as catcher Yadier Molina approached, Wainwright pulled back and it fell in between them. Then came the final blow. With one out and runners at first and second, Shane Victorino hit a ball into the hole between short and third. Cosma, who's four for 33 this postseason, couldn't corral it. It was ruled another error, and the bases were loaded. Pedroia then followed with a run-scoring single to left, and with the bases still loaded, David Ortiz drilled a fly ball to deep right. Carlos Beltran, though, snared it before it settled into the bullpen, yet his ribs, I say, just basically bumped into the right field fence at Wrigley Field, but he received badly bruised ribs, and he was pulled from the game at the start of the third inning with a right rib contusion. Beltran was playing in his 46th postseason game and was pulled from the game. And this is the first time he's ever been in the World Series, and he was pulled. Now, a Cardinal spokesman confirmed after the game that Beltran was taken to a local hospital but did not say which one. He had x-rays and a CT scan, and they were both negative, and he's being classified as day-to-day. Fox Sports' John Paul Morosi reports on the injury. After waiting more than 15 years for his first World Series game, Carlos Beltran certainly was hoping for something better than what unfolded here at Fenway Park Wednesday night. The Cardinals went down in defeat 8-1 in a mistake-filled loss, and Beltran left after two innings with bruised ribs. Now, the somewhat good news here is that Cardinals general manager John Mozalock said Beltran underwent a CT scan and x-ray at a local Boston hospital. Both were negative. Beltran should be a game-time decision, according to Mozalock, for Game 2. Uh, I think he's a little down right now. Um, certainly disappointed. Obviously, he wanted to play in this, and to uh, have to come out of the game before the game ended was disappointing for him. If Beltron is less than full strength in Game 2 and for the rest of the series, the Cardinals could struggle to score runs. He has accounted for roughly 30% of all their RBIs in this postseason. After the game, though, there was a lot of optimism in the clubhouse. They do have Alan Craig back from injury. Craig said he was fine, and the overall mood, looking forward to Game 2. If you have played in 46 postseason games, and this is the first World Series game you've ever been involved in, how in the world can you leave this game just over bruised ribs? Game two is in tonight's Fenway Park in Boston. First pitch is set for some time after eight. Now, this game two matchup brings plenty of intrigue on both sides as well, with 22-year-old breakout rookie Michael Waka taking on American League Comeback Player of the Year candidate John Lackey. Entering the season, it's fair to say neither one of these guys were expected to be in this position. 
Waka didn't join the Cardinal rotation full time until early December, or I'm sorry, September, and he's seven and one on the season. Meanwhile, Lackey missed all of the 2012 season with Tommy John surgery after being subpar in his first two years in Boston. Experience is certainly on Lackey's side because he has 14 postseason starts under his belt, but there may be no pitcher throwing the ball better than Waka right now. Well, in other Major League Baseball news, could David Price of the Tampa Bay Rays, a year removed from winning the American League Cy Young Award, end up in Los Angeles to team up with two other Cy Young Award winners in Clayton Kershaw and Zach Greinke? Well, if Peter Gammons is correct, you betcha. Price is getting a bit pricey for the Rays' liking. They'd like to sign him to a long-term deal, but they're still the Tampa Bay Rays, and they still don't have the necessary money to make such a move. According to Gammons, a source inside the Dodger organization said the deal would be price for two Dodger prospects, specifically shortstop Corey Seager and left-handed pitcher Julio Urias. Now, that's not the only rumor involved with the Dodgers this offseason. We're going to talk to Mark Donahue more about that in just a couple of moments. But in managerial news, we've got a hiring and we've got a retiring. And Jim Leland of the Detroit Tigers, after winning three straight division crowns with the team, has stepped down as manager of the Tigers. The 69-year-old helped turn the Tigers around in seven years as manager. As I said, he won three straight American League Central Division titles and went to the World Series twice. They went to the American League Championship Series three straight years, but they did not win a world championship under Leland. Leland told his players following the Game 6 loss in Boston on Saturday night that it was time for someone younger to step in and do the job. Now, who's going to manage the Tigers? That is the question. Initial reports came out that Kirk Gibson of the Arizona Diamondbacks may be interested in the job. Now, Gibson is on the final year of his contract with the D-backs. Remember, he's from Michigan. He played football at Michigan State. He played for the Tigers, and he played for the Dodgers. But he is very well-liked in the Michigan area. He's still a Michigander, and he still lives in Michigan during the offseason. But Kirk Gibson came out immediately and basically said that he was staying in Arizona. So now who will be the Tigers' new manager? Your guess is as good as mine. But again, one of the names that is coming up for this job, why I don't know, Maniacta. And down south in Ohio, in Cincinnati, Brian Price has been named the 61st manager of the Cincinnati Reds. Price has been the Reds' pitching coach since the 2010 season, and before coming to the Reds, he spent 10 years as a big league pitching coach, first with the Seattle Mariners from 2000 to 2005, and then with Arizona from 2006 to 2009. He began his coaching career in the Mariners' minor league system. Price, who's 51, has never pitched in the major leagues. He's turned the pitching around for Cincinnati, though. In his four years, the club has finished 7th, 12th, 3rd, and 4th in the National League and ERA. But in the three years before he arrived, the club was 7th, 13th, and 15th. Now, pitching coach is not the normal track to a manager's job, but John Farrell is now in the World Series with Boston. He has done it. Bud Black in San Diego. They are 
a former he's a former pitcher and he's a successful manager in San Antonio or I'm sorry San Diego but can Brian Price do it he's never managed anywhere on any level and the problem with the Reds this past season was with the offense can a pitching oriented guy turn that around Price responds. I, I would say first and foremost, there's a small sample size. Uh, number number two is I think it's hard to be a successful manager, period. I think there's some real challenges to being really good at this for a, a long period of time. Uh, I think going into it, I think the, there's an initial assumption that uh, you know pitchers would only understand one part of the game, and that was the defensive perspective and couldn't connect with the, with, with the, uh, the players uh, from an offensive perspective. And I think really it ends up, what we're finding out is it's really about relationships, surrounding yourself with good people. Managers don't uh, do everything. They don't do all the coaching. You know, they, 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 if, they're, if they're good, I believe, they're able to uh, designate different areas of responsibility to their staff and, and, and give them some autonomy in that. So I think that would be uh, probably a strength. So the Reds hire Brian Price announced on Monday. He takes over. For Dusty Baker, my cohort in crime, the resident Reds expert on our Ohio Baseball Weekly show, Mark Donahue. He's been touting Brian Price to be the new manager of the Reds for a couple of years now. Mark joins us on the Ultimate Sports Talk show. Mark, thanks for joining us tonight. Why is Brian Price the man for the job in Cincinnati? Well, he's only the man for the job in Cincinnati if he does well because I recommended him. Uh, <laughs> so... If he doesn't do well, forget this interview, because uh, you know I, I do think honestly that he is the guy who knows the the team well. This this team is positioned to win. I think had they gone outside the organization, it would have set them back at least a year. Just the familiarity of, of getting to know this team, and you you could argue that Riggleman would know the team because he managed in in Triple A. But Brian Price, I, I don't know what you took out of the interview with him a couple of days ago, but he's a very, very intelligent guy. Uh, he, he is, he's not going to suffer fools, and I think he has a toughness about him that may not be on the surface, but everybody I've talked to said, you don't mess with this guy. He, he will tell it like it is, and if somebody isn't putting out, he's the guy who is not afraid at all to go up and, and get somebody's attention. But Mike Leake had an interesting comment about Dusty Baker. He said Dusty Baker was really too nice. That he would not he would, he wanted to be friends with everybody, he wanted to be liked by everybody. And when you build that kind of relationship with guys who basically work for you and your job is dependent on, uh it's tough to get them to go do things. And he would not get in somebody's face. And that is the kind of guy I think Price is. And that's the kind of leadership the Reds need. He, he's, he's what I call a new age manager. He does believe in the sabermetrics. He's the kind of guy who is not going to be coerced by uh, people who, who see it a different way than him. He, he's got his own game plan. So that's why I thought he was the right guy, and I'm really glad the Reds made that decision. So, I mean, one of the problems that people were talking about Dusty having last year with the Reds was the fact that he was not fiery enough. You feel Price fits that bill? Yeah, but I think he's fiery in kind of an understated way. Uh, you know, what I heard was he, he can get up, he can get angry. And if somebody doesn't, you know, basically do what he wants him to do, he's not, he's not bashful. 
And Dusty, I think, tried to bring everybody along as his friend. And there is a place for that. And you can't, you can't argue with Dusty's success over his career. But I think the game has changed a lot. And over the last 10 years, the, the statistics that managers use uh, so consistently today, Dusty never bought into that. And that's why you had guys on, on his team uh, like Tavares and others who, I mean, statistically, they made no sense for that team. And he kept putting them out there for four or 500 bat- at-bats a year. And it just made no sense. And if you, if you do follow the Reds like I do on a game-by-game basis, I don't think I was ever more frustrated with a manager with, than Dusty. And some of the decisions he would make about personnel and lineups, it just made no sense. So I'm glad to see the Reds have taken this turn. And there was even an article in today's paper in the Dayton Daily News about the fact that the organization is not happy where, uh, with Joey Votto and not necessarily his fault, but maybe where he hits in the lineup. I mean, they, they have to determine, is he a power hitter or is he a guy who gets on base all the time and somebody else drives in? Because when you only have 73 RBIs from your number three hitter, you're either hitting him in the wrong spot or he's taken the wrong mentality to the plate every time he goes up there. Now, could he drive in 100 runs hitting somewhere else in the lineup, maybe fourth or fifth? Sure. Or maybe he could be a number two hitter. Uh, I mean, there's, there's a lot of places you could play, Joey. If, you know, a guy's hitting 310, 330 every year for you. He's going to hit 25, 30 home runs. Uh, there's a lot of places you can play him. But I was really happy to hear the Reds were open to the idea of recasting some of the roles for these guys because the Reds have a lot of talent. It's just a matter of getting a manager to bring that talent out. Well, that leads me into my other question about Brian Price is the fact that he's a career pitching coach, he's a career pitcher, and the Reds' problem last year, for the most part, was offense. So how does a predominantly primary pitching coach turn around an offensive woes, talent-laden team like the Cincinnati Reds? Well, I mean, look at Brooke Jacoby and Dusty Baker. I mean, you have two guys who are renowned hitting experts, and they couldn't make the team hit. I don't think it's a matter of making the team hit. I think it's making the team produce. <clears throat> you can have the same statistics the Reds had this year, but if they were, if, if if the approach or the strategy or tactics utilized during a game will produce more wins if if it's done differently. In other words, the Reds had a lot of blowout wins last year, where they would score 12, 13, 10, nine runs. And beat somebody nine to nothing, so that you know the, the stats go up. But they would consistently lose close games, and th- there would be many games they didn't score at all, or they score one or two runs. Well, if you could add where they scored two runs, make them score four by your approach, then you, you can you can win more games with the same amount of runs scored. I know that doesn't make any sense on, on the surface, but if you get down and look at it more closely. It's how you approach a specific game. And that's where I think Dusty Baker would drive me insane, where he would bunt sometimes, where I say, why are you bunting now? Or he wouldn't bunt in in situations that apparently or obviously to me called for a bunt. And he would simply 
reverse managed sometimes to the point of distraction for fans where it made no sense. So I think if, if you have a sabermetrics guy, he can look at those kinds of statistics and say, look, okay, we scored whatever they scored, 700 runs last year. We can better apply those runs if we have a different approach. So if you know that you're, you're not proficient at driving in runs with two outs, you would take a different approach early in the game to get more runs on the board, as an example. So I think he's the kind of guy who has the intellect to be able to approach it that way, and with the talent level of the Reds right now, I think that's what they need. Mark, I know one of the interesting things that I found during that press conference where they announced Brian Price as the manager was his intentions to move Araldus Chapman into the starting rotation. What, what are the thoughts down there in Cincinnati and your thoughts about that move? I'm not sure that's carved in stone yet. It, it may rely on what they do with their current starting rotation. Number one, I doubt they're going to sign Bronson Arroyo. I think that would be a big mistake if they did. But then the question comes up, what do you do with Homer Bailey? He's going to be a free agent after this year. He doesn't want to sign a long-term contract. So arguably the Reds may be in a good position to trade him now, get what they can rather than losing to free agency. So they trade Homer Bailey and, and Arroyo is gone. I think it's a fait accompli that Chapman moves into the rotation. Now, if they keep Bailey... They, they have five starters, with Singrani included, that they really don't need Chapman in the starting rotation. But I heard, heard an interesting uh, discussion the other day where they might put Singrani in, in the bullpen as a closer because he's a two-pitch pitcher, basically, but he throws hard. I mean, he, he was up 95, 96 miles an hour this year, and he's fearless. He's, he's a tough, little, tough kid. And so that would be an interesting move. You put Chapman in the in rotation, and you put uh, Singrani at, at the back end. But it's a good problem to have, Dave. When you have somebody like Chapman, he's going to be a stud closer, or he's going to be one of the elite starters in baseball. The question is, what do you need at that time to complement your pitching staff, understanding that he's not going to be able to throw 105 miles an hour for seven or eight innings every night. But he, he has developed a third pitch. And I think he's more likely to succeed in the starting rotation than Singrani. And Singrani, with two pitches, uh, could arguably uh, you know, be very successful as a closer. Well, the Internet is abuzz with several rumors about the Reds. I know you and I have talked. You think the Reds are going to be very active during the offseason. But the name that's really being bandied about, Mark, is Brandon Phillips. And he really sort of ticked off the Reds organization towards the end of the year. What happened there, and do you expect Phillips back next year? Well, I'll answer the second question first. No, I don't expect him back. And what he did, in short, was uh, really directly insult um, Bob Castellini uh, by, by calling him a liar, basically. And, and he did it twice. So I don't think there's any way that he's going to be back next year. I don't know how you fix that. And secondly, he was the kind of guy, there was a report yesterday that one of the players said that if he went 0 for 4 and the Reds won, he would be pouting after a game. If the Reds lost but he went 2 for 4, he would be very jovial and in a good mood. And that doesn't escape your teammates. They're just guys like that that you, that you play with and you understand that they're kind of in it for themselves. 
and he was very much and, and very much is a self promoter and you know there's nothing wrong with tweeting and all that stuff but I think he went overboard and I think he, he's burned his bridges here in Cincinnati and it's very interesting that when you when you look at his statistics he drove in 103 runs this year but he only hit 260 and he had so many opportunities with Vado and Chu hitting in front of him it would be hard not to drive in 100 runs you, you could do that with ground balls and pop-ups uh, to the outfield and drive in you know 40 50 runs just doing that so he his his two years ago he hit over hit 300 last year he hit 281 this year he hit 261 the argument is he is a declining talent with 50 million dollars left on the contract and he ticked off the ownership. So I think it's just say, do the math. And I think the, the answer is he's not going to be back. Well, one of the primary rumors, Mark, is him going to the Dodgers for Matt Kemp. How many, how many are there legs to that rumor? Uh, certainly, I don't think it would be an even up trade other than Matt Kemp is making, I think, $20 million a year and Brandon's making less. So. Uh, if you traded contracts, the Reds would have to pick up a big chunk of, of Matt Kemp, a bigger chunk than they have to pay to, to Brandon Phillips. Now, just on the baseball front of it, that would be a good match for both teams. The Dodgers desperately need a second baseman, and the Reds need an, a power-hitting right-handed outfielder. So, yeah, I think it makes sense on the surface, but the question would be, do and, and the Dodgers, I think, proved this year they don't need Matt Kemp. They can win without him. Uh, they've got that great pitching staff. They've got plenty of power. In fact, they have too many outfielders. If he does come back, the Dodgers have to trade somebody from that outfield. And, you know, it'd be a great load for them to get Kemp's contract off the books. But the question with Kemp right now is he's having ankle surgery. If he didn't have it, he's, already, he's soon to have it. And is he going to be ready to come back next year? Yeah, and he would fit well into the Reds' uh, batting lineup next year. Mark, away from the Reds, I want to talk to you a little bit about what's going on in baseball. Jim Leland resigning as manager of the Detroit Tigers. Were you surprised at that? Uh, I, I guess moderately surprised. Uh, maybe he's like Dusty Baker. He's taken that team as far as he can. And on paper, that is one of the more... T I mean, think about that team's starting rotation and their offense. It's hard to believe they don't win every year with that team. I mean, I mean, win the World Series. And they just, they haven't done it. And they've gotten one step further than the Reds. They go further in the playoffs, but they come away with similar disappointment. They, they, they just don't win the World Series. And in some cases, you know, they, they, they don't even get into the World Series. So with, with that payroll, with the, the name players they have, and I think that team is on the verge of a big letdown, and which leads me to the Cleveland Indians situation. You look at the age and the physical shape of those players on the, on, on the Tigers. Uh, I just wonder when that drop-off is going to come. I mean, Cabrera has just been magnificent for three, four years in a row, especially the last two. But he's a big boy, and you wonder how much longer he can sustain that level of performance. And with Prince Fielder... I don't know how he does it, you know, weighing 325 pounds. But I'm telling you, at some point, just like his dad, it will hit. 
And I think there could be a huge drop-off in performance. And if there is, and if they have just any pitching injuries, that team is very vulnerable, which I think bodes well for the Indians. I think the Indians have a chance to overtake them next year, and we can talk about the Indians some other time. But uh, I think the Indians are in good shape, and that Central is up for grabs. Kansas City's improved. They're going to they're gonna beat Detroit more times than they, than they have in the past. And it's going to be a fun division to watch over the next few years. Yeah, I think it really will, too. Game one of the World Series last night, Mark, got to ask you, St. Louis, I don't think they've had a game like that in probably five years. It, it was kind of remarkable. And did you see when the pop-up dropped between Molina and the pitcher, there was a, he had like a, a sheepish grin on his face, like, what did I just do? And he called for the ball. You know, why did I just take it? <laughs> I don't understand why he didn't catch it. But Molina didn't apparently call for it. So, very strange play. And then the play at second base, uh, you know, that's just a, a brain cramp. You need to get the one out. But, you know, you have to understand, too, the, the shortstop there was on the second base side of the bag. And he had to take a weird route to the bag to, to try and get that double play. But he should have taken the one out and been done with it. And then, you know, I think the, the Cardinals have a chance to get out of that inning unscathed. But uh, right now, Boston, boy, uh, you know, they, they tied a record last night that you probably didn't know the Reds held. Until last night, the Reds had won the most consecutive World Series games in the last, uh, what is it, 40 years? They'd won nine straight World Series games, and, and Boston tied that last night. If you go back and look, they won nine straight World Series games, but the Reds, when they, uh, in 75, they won the final game of the 75 World Series. They swept right. the Yankees four straight in 76, and then they swept Oakland in 1990. So they had won nine consecutive World Series games. My thanks to Mark Donahue, my co-host on the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show, for being our guest here this evening, talking about Brian Price being named the new Reds manager and some off-season maneuvering that the Reds may accomplish this year. Switching to football, and the Browns are switching quarterbacks. Jason Campbell is getting a chance to start at quarterback for the Reeling Browns, who are turning to the veteran to settle things down and save a season that's beginning to spin out of control. Browns coach Rob Chudzinski says that he's going to Campbell because he gives him the best chance to win this Sunday. Uh, I have decided that, I will, that we'll start uh, Jason Campbell this week. I believe that this is in the best interest of the team, ultimately, and gives us the best chance to win. And I'm excited to see uh, what Jason will do with this opportunity. You know, looking at Jason, uh, the things that he brings to the table, his leadership, uh, his experience, uh, he's been productive and been successful in the league. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, you look at his arm strength, you look at his mobility and some of those things tie into to also from a game plan standpoint what we feel like we need for this game and ultimately giving us the best chance. Campbell is the third quarterback to start for the Browns this season and the 20th since 1999 when the Browns came back. Chudzinski wouldn't say this is a permanent demotion for Whedon and even praised the former quarterback for the work that he has accomplished during the past few weeks. Well, we're going to evaluate it on a week-to-week -week basis. And, uh, you know, and again, the, the whole goal is to put the guy out there that gives us the best opportunity to win. Uh, going back and forth isn't ideal, 
but ultimately, uh, you know, finding the production and the consistency that we need is the goal. You know, I think that Brandon has improved. Uh, he's worked awfully hard. And, um, you know, again, it just goes back to production and uh, the combination of uh, what we need to do in this game and from a game plan standpoint and giving us the best opportunity. Well, I think in any game that the Browns go into, Jason Campbell probably gives them the best opportunity to win because Brandon Whedon has proven over the past few weeks he just does not have what it takes to win in the NFL. He had to leave in week number two after suffering a thumb injury. The Browns were 0-2 then. The team turned to Brian Hoyer, and he led the Browns to three straight wins. But then he ended his season with a knee injury in week five. Campbell started just one game last year and knows he may have to knock the rust off before he can become successful with the Browns. Well, you know, it's an it's a opportunity, um, you know, to go out there and just, uh, you know, just get back to the game and just having fun. Um, you know, obviously, you know, we want to go win games and uh, do the best that we can. And, but, you know, at the same time, we understand we're a growing football team. And, you know, our goal and mission every week is to, to go out and win games and do the best at it. But the one thing we can't forget is just to get back to having fun at the having fun in this game. Well, it's not about one person. Um, you know, I know everyone wanted to say, you know, it's about Brandon, but it really wasn't about one person. You know, we all as a collective group, uh, you know, have to do a better job, uh, play in and play out, you know, of doing our own job. And I think the only thing that I that I should do is, uh, you know, just try to you know, be a leader at the same time, you know, just try to do my job to the best of my abilities, uh, you know, not try to do anything to the stream, uh, just try to stay within the game and, uh, and find your rhythm. Well, Campbell is sticking to the company line, but actually the team was falling into disarray under Brandon Whedon. The receivers didn't put forth a good effort last week because they knew Whedon couldn't get them the ball. So Campbell now has the opportunity to start, and let's see what he can do. We're going to take a look at the NFL schedule for the upcoming week in just a few minutes, so stick with us here on the Ultimate Sports Talk Show. Preseason basketball is nearly impossible to make matter, and in the case of Greg Oden, former Ohio State star and Portland Trailblazers first-round draft pick, the preseason does matter. It actually transcends basketball. Nearly four years ago, Greg Oden was still potentially a giant for the Portland Trailblazers. He was supposed to be the next great big man. He was the next coming. He was that legitimate as a basketball player. And then he jumped in a December game against the Houston Rockets, already grimacing, grabbing his knee, and on the way to the bench. His left kneecap was fractured likely on the jump itself. And over the next couple of years, Odin was paid a lot of money just to rehab. The problem with that was the rehab wasn't going very well. Odin had to undergo surgery after surgery, his knees rejecting the genetic makeup of the real-life giant with each step. There were even points in which walking normally was in question, and it would have been easy to just walk away from the game and not go through the fear of tearing another ligament, cracking another patella, are once again falling short of the dream. And yet, there he was last night, checking into the ball game and getting pats on his chest from his teammates that respected his heart. On the first play of the game, he made a 6'9 professional athlete look like a child, moving him out of the way and throwing down a two-handed dunk. The rim rattled, hearts swelled, and caps came off the heads of basketball junkies out of respect for what the man accomplished. Three minutes and 59 seconds of preseason basketball have never been so satisfying. 
Just ask Greg Oden after the game. They kind of told me earlier today, but uh, I'm happy I'm able to walk off this court and I'm, I'm able to play another day. So I'm happy my first shot was a dunk and I made it. So, um, you know, I'm still getting it back. I got a long ways to go, but I'm just happy to be out there. You're feeling from this point forward, though, as you go through the beginning part of this regular season, what is the next phase for you going to look like? Uh, right now, ice, you know, and make sure that tomorrow, you know, I, I take care of everything I need to and uh, make sure the swelling's down and my knee's good and uh, go out there and look forward to the next game that I can get into. Spent three years, three long years, and, uh, you know, my friends and my family and, uh, and God, they've been with me the whole entire way. And, uh, I'll finish the game. So. Albeit brief, Greg Oden's return to the NBA court last night was a monumental step in his return to the league. He was supposed to be dominating at this point in his career. Now he just hopes to play. David Stern announced yesterday the NBA Finals are returning to the 2-2-1-1-1 format. The change will be implemented this year with an extra day off between Game 6 and 7, and it will also allow for a possible Game 7 to be played on a Friday. The NBA Finals had primarily been played in the 2-2-1-1-1 format before switching to the 2-3-2 format in 1985, which forced the team with the best record to play the middle three games on the road. This was really pushed by the Boston Celtics coach, Red Auerbach, who championed the switch because it would cut down on travel when his team was facing the Los Angeles Lakers all the time. Stern said the change to the 2-2-1-1-1 was an easy sell to the league's Board of Governors, which voted unanimously to approve the change. Oh, it's time for our weekly feature now, the good, the bad, and the ugly in the world of sports. And all too often, the good story this week, we hear stories about overpaid professional athletes stiffing the wait staff at restaurants, sometimes even when they're not being cheap at all. But Tamba Hali is apparently out to show that not every pro is a cheapskate when it comes to the gratuity. According to KCTV, the Kansas City Chiefs outside linebacker and more than a dozen friends and family dined at Brazilian steakhouse Fogo de Chao on Sunday night after Kansas City's one-point win over Houston. The total cost of the meal came out to $1,827, with an automatic $297 gratuity included in the cost. Then on top of that, Hali added an extra $1,000 tip to bring the total up to $2,827. The staff obviously screamed in joy after Halib and the family left. They figured they would wait to show their appreciation until after he left. Good for you. Here's the bad. The Cleveland Indians are asking fans for their opinion of their longtime logo, Chief Wahoo. But the organization wants the feedback on a lot else, too. As part of the team's normal off-season survey of its fans, a question about the tribe's at times controversial logo generated some buzz on social media over the past couple of days. The survey asked Indian fans to rate the extent to which they agree or disagree with the following statements about the Chief Wahoo logo. This logo reflects the heritage of the Indians. 
I feel a strong, positive, emotional connection to this logo. This logo makes me proud of the Indians. This logo resents more than the team. It represents the city of Cleveland. And this logo is an important part of my support for the Indians. Earlier today, I had an opportunity to ask Mark Donahue, co-host, on the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show, his opinion of the Indians logo. There's nothing wrong with Indian. Uh, you could argue that there are some interpretations or descriptions of the Indian, uh, like Redskins, that, that could be deemed offensive. The, the funny thing is, the people, Indians, the actual uh, Indian race, have been uh, polled about this, and they don't take offense to any of that. You know, and I've got a solution for the Washington Redskins, a very simple solution. All they have to do is change their logo from an Indian to a potato, and they can keep the Redskins. Uh, unbelievable, Mark. Fans were also asked for similar responses on four Indians jerseys, white, navy, gray, and the alternate cream-colored top. I, I agree with Mark. I don't think this is derogatory towards anybody. Chief Wahoo has been around for years, and he is a hallmark with the Indians ball club. And here's the ugly for this week. Grambling State University and the University of Louisiana System will launch a review of the university following concerns raised by football players who ended their boycott on Monday. The institutional review will conduct a comprehensive assessment of the institution and make recommendations for improvement. The school's football team protested, among other grievances, substandard athletic facilities, unhealthy conditions, and long bus rides to games. But players also contended the problem they saw in facilities went beyond athletic sites. According to the university, Grambling's overall state funding has been cut by 57% to about $13 million, while the athletics budget was cut $335,000 to $6.8 million. And on another front, the Tigers' SWAC rivals at Jackson State announced in a statement on the JSU website Tuesday that the school intends to pursue litigation against Grambling State and others after Grambling's players boycotted that game at Jackson State last Saturday. You see, the game was Jackson State's homecoming. And though many of the school's scheduled activities went on as planned, the statement claims that Jackson State University and the city of Jackson's losses could be in the millions. So that is just a very bad story all around. That's a look at the good, the bad, and the ugly for this week. We do it every week here at the Ultimate Sports Talk show on ultimatesportstalk.com. Glad to have you along tonight. I am Dave Mitchell. Let's move along to college football, where the first BCS standings of the season came out last Sunday night. And if the championship game were held today, Alabama and, lo and behold, Florida State would be in the championship game. Oregon is a close third behind Florida State, and Ohio State's out of here. The Seminoles are coming off their biggest win of the season, a 51-14 victory at previously unbeaten Clemson. The Ducks are just about .28 points behind Florida State. And they have only played one team that was ranked at the time, but they could get a boost in the next couple of weeks as they play UCLA and at Stanford. Ohio State is a more distance fourth. Now the Buckeyes could win, get this, 25 straight games and not be in a championship game. The top two teams after the regular season play is over will play in the Rose Bowl. 
for the national title in January. Now, here's a look at the Associated Press college football top ten for the week. Alabama still number one. They're unbeaten at 7-0. So is Oregon, number two, at 7-0. Florida State 6-0 is number three. Then comes Ohio State, Missouri, Baylor, Miami of Florida, Stanford, Clemson, and Texas Tech. Let's take a look at what's going on in college football for this weekend, and let's start out in the horseshoe, where the Ohio State Buckeyes will look for number 20 in a row under Urban Meyer, as they will take on Penn State on Saturday night on ABC. Urban Meyer finally had the opportunity and decided to do it to talk to his team about the BCS standings and what their hopes are this week. Well, we had our first State of the Union uh, address uh, on when was it yesterday, and it's the first time that I do talk about polls, and because uh, I wanted to, you know, I, they're going to hear it. You know, this BCS thing came out, and uh, my comment was that uh, we are indeed in the mix. Embrace it. In the mix for what? Don't worry about it. We are in the mix, though. Uh, people think very highly of you. Maybe some people don't. That doesn't. You just have to go out and be the best team on the field on Saturdays, not in the country. And so I did address it. We just talked about it, and uh, somewhat briefly, but at least it was addressed. It's the first time I've done that. The Buckeyes, as I said, seven and zero, going for number twenty in a row. They'll entertain Penn State Saturday night on ABC. Number one team in the country is Alabama. They are going to be entertaining Tennessee, and Nick Saban is excited about the rivalry that contains Tennessee and Alabama. You know, this game with Tennessee is a you know very special rivalry for you know a lot of people, uh, a lot of our folks in Alabama, and especially for our team. And uh, it's been one of the best rivalries in college football for a long, long time. And you know, right now, Tennessee is emerging as you know a very good football team in the last two weeks. Um, had an opportunity to beat Georgia, beat South Carolina last week. Uh, I think Butch Jones has done a, an outstanding job there. And, you know, when a team improves like they've improved, you know, it's always a sign of, you know, good coaching, good coaching staff, and, you know, a lot of people doing, doing a very, very good job. So uh, they're able to run the ball very effectively on offense, and quarterbacks played really well for them. Uh, defensively, they've got eight starters back and have played – uh, really well so far this year. Uh, they've got all their specialists back. They're very good on special teams. So this is a really solid team all the way around. The number two team in the country is Oregon, according to the Associated Press Top Ten, and they will be entertaining UCLA. First-year coach Mark Helfrich talks about the Bruins' matchup on Saturday night. They're an outstanding defense. I think this is the deepest defense we've played. I think all, their, their whole their front seven, they play a ton of guys on, on both levels that are really talented. Anthony Barr gets the, the, you know, the vast majority of the praise, and he is a, un, he is a fantastic, unbelievable football player. And then there's three more guys that, at that level. You know, there are three, four teams as well, and they're – they're really good. A big strength of our football team is our, our D-line, and those guys need to – this needs to be a huge game for them, as well as it's a huge chan, uh, challenge for our offensive line against their defensive line. They're, they're outstanding up front, you know, led by Cassish, Cassish March, Marsh, which I can't even pronounce that name. Uh, you know, that's been a, a big focus this week, as it is most weeks. Florida State has moved from number five to number three. They catapulted the Ohio State Buckeyes with their win over – Clemson last week, they will be entertaining North Carolina State. Missouri will entertain South Carolina. Don't look now, but the best team in the country may be Baylor. 
They beat Iowa State last week, 71-7, to and they will be playing at Kansas on Saturday. Miami of Florida will host Wake Forest. It will be Stanford at Oregon State. Should be a great ball game between two Pac-12 schools. Elsewhere in the top 25, Clemson will be at Maryland. Texas Tech goes to Oklahoma. Petros Papadakis and Jill Arrington examine this contest. For all the talk about the Red Raiders passing attack averaging better than 400 yards per game, their defense is also quietly strong, ranking 16th in the nation in points allowed per game. Can this unit keep Bob Stoops' offense in check? Yeah, maybe they can because Oklahoma is a team that's struggling a little bit with their identity. A terrible loss to Texas in the Red River rivalry really set them back because we stopped talking about them. They were the team to beat in the Big 12, and now that's Baylor. And if Baylor goes undefeated, you think they're going to get the number one spot in the BCS or number two? Probably not with the way the Big 12 looks this year. They're in the same situation that Ohio State is. But when you're talking about Oklahoma and Texas Tech, and you look at Texas Tech's defense, this is really something that started last year under Tommy Tuberville. They're a better defensive team. And Cliff Kingsbury, give him credit, he inherited that and kept that going with this offensive mentality. Texas Tech's a very good balanced football team, and they have a chance to pull out a victory. And here's the rest of the top 25 schedule. Furman will be at LSU. Vanderbilt at Texas A&M. Fresno State will be at San Diego State. It's Duke at Virginia Tech. South Florida will entertain Louisville. Louisville reeling after their three-point loss to UCF last week. Oklahoma State is at Iowa State. It is UCF. They're taking on Connecticut. Wisconsin will be at Iowa. Northern Illinois entertains Eastern Michigan. Then it's Michigan at Michigan State. And Nebraska will be playing at Minnesota. Golden Gophers coach Jerry Kill is still on a leave of absence trying to overcome his epileptic seizures. Let's move to the games on Sunday. But before we do that, unfortunately, the Favre watch is back. The St. Louis Rams may be having a problem finding a reliable quarterback with starter Sam Bradford sidelined by a knee injury, but they don't seem to be having any trouble getting media coverage for their search. The same team that reportedly discussed signing Tim Tebow has reportedly reached out to Brett Favre, citing several unnamed sources. Adam Schefter of ESPN reported this morning that St. Louis called up Favre and not Tebow after Bradford went down with a torn ACL in last Sunday's ballgame. On Sunday night, the Rams called 44-year-old grandfather Brett Favre to see if he would have any interest in coming out of retirement to play quarterback for the Rams. Favre declined the offer. But the fact that the Rams reached out tells you where they were at and then where they were willing to go. And they reached out to him Sunday night. Never reached out to Tebow, did reach out to Favre. And Favre declined any chance to go into St. Louis to go play quarterback. The man who had wavered so many times before did not appear to waver in this particular situation. What's interesting about it is that a couple of weeks ago, his agent, Plus Cook, noted that Favre was ready to play again, that he was in good enough shape to play again, at least. That's what he intended. And Favre would not have a difficult time learning the offense, considering that the Rams' offensive coordinator is Brian Schottenheimer, and he played for Schottenheimer in New York with the Jets. So it would not have been a difficult transition, but to ask somebody who's 44, who's plowing his farm in Mississippi, 
to come off the farm, literally, to go play for the Rams, I think in his own mind was too much, and he decided not to pursue the opportunity. For now, for the Rams, their starter is Kellen Clemens, with Brady Quinn as the backup. No Matt Leinart, no Vince Young, no Tim Tebow, and thankfully, no Brett Favre. Well, normally we would have a commentary by former NFL head coach Brian Billick about the Thursday night ball game. Tonight's ball game is on the NFL Network. It's on at about 8.30, where the Carolina Panthers are taking on the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And quite frankly, who cares? I'm taking Tampa Bay in this ball game just on a whim because it's in Florida at Raymond James Stadium, but we don't need any expert advice on who's going to win or lose this ball game and why. Let's move on to the Sunday games, though, because the game of the day, as far as Cleveland Browns fans are concerned, goes on in Kansas City, where the Browns are going to be taking on the Kansas City Chiefs. And Rob Chudzinski gives us a scouting report of the unbeaten Chiefs. Andy Reid has done a great job. Uh, you look at their defense, uh, they're one of the tops in the league in a number of categories, points allowed, takeaways, and sacks. Uh, great talent and a great scheme. Defensive line-wise, big and strong there. Uh, Don Terry Poe is really playing good football. He's a force in there. Inside, uh, and Holly and Houston on the outside at their backer positions really bring uh, edge pressure. Derek Johnson's been playing good for a long time. He's good in, the, in, in all three downs, a very good football player. And their secondary, it's an outstanding secondary, very solid at all three levels. Uh, offensively, uh, playing good football, uh, mix and run and pass very well. They're efficient and uh, give you a lot of different formations and cause some issues from that standpoint. Uh, Alex Smith is managing the offense very well. He's a run and pass threat. Uh, Jamal Charles is a dynamic player at the running back position as both a receiver and runner. As far as their skill guys, Fasano, uh, Bo, and Avery also give Alex Smith some options down the field. I really think their offensive line is, is very underrated. It's a very good offensive line. Uh, that group has done a great job in blocking both run and pass. As much as I would like to, I can't take the Browns. Take Kansas City in this ballgame. Elsewhere in the early game, San Francisco will be at Jacksonville. The Niners will win that easy. Miami at New England. It's Buffalo at New Orleans. Dallas at Detroit. And the Giants will be at Philadelphia. The late games have the New York Jets at Cincinnati. I'm taking the Bengals. Pittsburgh at Oakland. I'm going to pick Oakland with an upset here. Atlanta over Arizona. Washington will be playing at Denver, and I got the Broncos in that game. The late game on Sunday night is Green Bay at Minnesota. And then the Monday night game, it is the Seattle Seahawks in St. Louis, taking on Kellen Clemens and the Rams. I take the Seahawks in that ball game. That's going to do it for our show tonight. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Our thanks to Mark Donahue for being our guest, talking about the Reds' new manager, Brian Price, and some of the moves that the Reds could make in the offseason. My thanks to Greg Mitchell, our producer, but our thanks most of all to you for listening. Until next Thursday night at 7 o'clock, I'm Dave Mitchell. Thanks for joining us on the Ultimate Sports Talk Show, everyone. Have a good weekend, and good night, everybody.